Our panel members tonight are Dr. Arnold DeGroff, Dr. Robert Newsom, Dr. Cornelius Van Til, and Dr. William Young. Uh, the moderator of our panel this evening will be Dr. Paul Schrotenbohr. And for those of you who may not know, he is the General Secretary of the Reformed Ecumenical Senate and a trustee of Westminster Theological Seminary. <coughs> Mr. Grady Spires, Professor of Philosophy at Gordon College, and uh, this is an unexpected pleasure to have him uh, on our panel tonight. <coughs> now, these questions have already been screened by Dr. Schrodenborg, and I think without uh, further ado, we can proceed. Thank you. I'd like to ask the panel to, when we take a break, to please remain seated for just two minutes so Mr. Van Dalt can get some photographs. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is a privilege to me to moderate this panel tonight. You will notice that they are on an elevated platform and I am on your level. <laughs> now this evening we will this evening we will engage in dialogue, that is, an open hearted discussion on the common basis of our commitment to Christ and our service of the Lord. The question is, it seems, as you look over the program of today, what is theology? Now there seems to be some difficulty as to who has the answer here. In Grand Rapids, we have too many answers to this question. <laughs> here are some of them. A professor in a theological school in Grand Rapids said last year, <laughs> theology is a job. Now, I'm a theologian. When my car doesn't work, I take it to a mechanic. Common people should leave theology to me and to my associates. Now, the question is, was he right? Is theology a job? And an editor of a church paper in Grand Rapids said, <laughs> About the same time, I think within a week, we must all theologize about poverty, about race, and about the love of God and the extent of the atonement. For, he said, theology is simply to talk about God. Theology. Now, is he being naive? when he asked, when he said that. And then there was a professor at a synod in Grand Rapids who said, <laughs> when they were discussing the love of God and the limiting, the limits of the atonement, I do not speak to you today as a theologian. He was a professor in a theological college. But he says, I speak to you as a historian. 
and he then explained to the honored members of the Senate some of the background of the canons of Dort. Now this afternoon we heard the two different explanations of theology. Is the one more acceptable than the other? And is the difference between them mere bagatelle? Or is our view of theology inseparable for, from our view of man and of the nature of the Word of God? And that's where we begin this evening. Now there are about 22 questions which were added in, and I thought that I had them just a little bit categorized until I got the last eight about two minutes ago, and the confusion has reigned since. However, there is one question here, actually two, by a certain gentleman who says that he must leave early and, if possible, would like to have these questions <laughs> as early as possible. It's directed to Dr. DeGraff. I will ask this question and uh, we'll give him just about a minute and a half to answer, I suppose. <laughs> Dr. DeGraff, in terms of your comments about the dynamic and continuing character of the Word of God, how would you differentiate your position from Barth's doctrine of Scripture and from the meaning of the other modern claim that revelation is not propositional? And then let me add this other one, too. I think you can take it all in one. <laughs> in the matter of salvation itself, is it not necessary for a man first to understand propositionally the fact that he is a sinner and the fact that and the reason why he should trust Jesus and know who Jesus is, before this man can actually exercise meaningful faith, is not this the meaning of the command to repent and believe? If it is not, how would you differentiate this type of experience from Buber in his eyebrow relationship? How would you experience that with his eyebrow relationship with a, a horse? Is it only that the object of our relationship is different? That's yours, Dr. DeGraff. Have the whole thing. A minute and a half. Yes, uh, two and a half. Two minutes. Okay. I'm not particularly a student of Barth. In fact, I don't think I'm even a theologian anymore at this point, having taught psychology for a year and a half. But I have some understanding, I think, of what distinguishes us and this position I try to set forth on Scripture. <coughs> For one thing, I would very clearly distantiate myself from this open, blatant dualism of Barth's position and shy away from any dilemma, irrationalism, 
rationalism as I try to do in the speech by very carefully trying to give the logical moment its place. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if that would satisfy anyone. I have a notion that as long as I keep talking about religion, which is pre-functional and about the heart in that way and the word of God directing itself to the heart that this might always give somewhat of the impression of going in this direction I can understand that somewhat and yet I feel in no way that this would go in Bart's direction it is not in that sense supra-temporal uh, suddenly <coughs> entering into our time and situation but it's just that you cannot capture the working of the word of God functionally I think there are more questions on this order and we might have to return to that one uh, let me have a try first at the second part in the matter of salvation is it not necessary for a man first to understand propositionally the fact that he's a <coughs> sinner and the fact that the reason why he should well I can't quite decipher this immediately but at least this point of shooting up first understand propositionally the fact that he's a sinner I would say no if I take that word propositionally in a certain manner I want to give clearly place to the analytical moment but then an integrated place in the entire activity of faith that is an integral part of it and is not to be characterized as propositional, logical. I have an idea that everybody would like now like to jump in and ask one or so. And the time will come when you two may jump in. But I think we have to get a little deeper water first. Um, here's one for Dr. Young. Dr. Young, what is your present feeling? <laughs> what is your present feeling concerning the suggestion by Dr. Spear and others? I think that that is uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Spear of the uh, the uh, introduction to the yeah. Christian philosophy that the modal sphere of faith, the cystic sphere, should be wholly transcendent to the other spheres. If you agree with such a position, could you provide the significance of it? I don't know if I ever had a past feeling. <laughs> Not to speak of having a present one. <laughs> Not <laughs> any such matter. Uh, 
But I'll attempt to cook up a proposition or two. <laughs> Let me see this. <laughs> the modal sphere of space should be holy and in the first place, if somebody were to ask me whether the present uh, uh, king of uh, Philadelphia uh, 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 wears a Russian hat, I would uh, decline the question in uh, that it uh, strikes me as being about a non-existent subject. Now, since I uh, have grave doubts about uh, uh, the existence of any such thing as the modal sphere of faith, uh, I really should absolve myself to start with from answering any questions as to whether it's tra wholly transcendent uh, to, uh, the, uh, to the other spheres or not. But I would just say this, I don't see that faith itself, never mind about the modal sphere of faith, but if we just talk about faith itself, I don't see that faith itself as a human activity is peculiarly transcendent to other human activities. A faith as higher uh, learned from Hodge's systematic theology, I think has three elements, uh, knowledge, uh, assent, and trust. And uh, these elements uh, uh, are elements uh, which uh, one can very well apply to uh, non-transcendent things as well as to transcendent things. Uh, we have knowledge of earthly things and uh, uh, we give assent to propositions other than propositions of the faith and uh, we trust uh, people uh, in our ordinary life. Uh, the great difference between faith in the religious sense and faith in uh, other contexts strikes me as being the difference in objects not the difference in uh, the uh, psychological or biographical uh, experience uh, from a purely uh, on the purely subjective side. So, uh, uh, over and above the fact that I really have not the faintest notion as to what Spear is talking about when he speaks of a modal sphere wholly transcendent to all the other spheres, I would uh, be inclined uh, uh, to say that if the question does have some meaning, the answer is no. <laughs> None of you knew for sure whether Professor Spires would be with us this evening, and so you didn't have a chance to direct any to him. But I have redirected one of the questions, and that's this. Uh, how does scripture differ from theology in its function for the believer? How does scripture differ from theology in its function for the believer? 
This was not my day. <laughs> I can say some things about it, but I don't feel satisfied myself about uh, my ability to answer this question. But let's, let's begin with an illustration. What is the difference between the doctrine of the Trinity as developed in any ecumenical creed or in any reformed uh, systematic dogmatician and the baptismal formula of the Great Commission of our, of our Lord to his Apostles and the Pauline benediction, which is named the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the latter I've referred to are the immediate data of Scripture, and the former are the reflection of the Church in trying to subject their minds to the Scripture, usually with respect to some doctrinal development or some influence of the culture which they find to be threatening to the soundness of faith. Now, in, in the Church's activity in doing this, it has had to use some, at least, some classifying languages and some, uh, some uh, apparatus for systematizing the data of Scripture which are not given, relatively speaking, in as systematic a fashion as the creeds or as a dogmatician would work. Uh, and so, uh, the, I would say the Scripture functions immediately to the believer to give him an idea about the Father and about the Son and about the Holy Spirit. And I think the formula, I think it was Warfield's formula that, that uh, there is one God and the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God is a fair summation of the scriptural teaching on the, on the Trinity. But there are many questions that would be asked and raised outside of the church and inside of the church. Now, I'm not certain as to the pale where, for example, a general formula like the, well, there is one God, and the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. I'm not sure where the pale between the ideas conveyed immediately by the Scripture and the generalization by the believer in his confession turns from such a statement as I've just made by Warfield, I think, to theology. Uh, it seems to me uh, that much of what Joy Red was calling ground motive scriptural ground motive is very much like what I saw when I read Gerhardus Voss, in which he called it biblical theology, where the development of the biblical themes are traced relatively historically and uh, exegeted in their development. That struck me to be very, very similar to what, when I studied this more intensely, to what Doyred was calling uh, ground motive, insofar as I could understand him. Now, ground motive is supposed to be non-theoretical, according to Doyred, and, uh, and not theology. Well, my point is, I am confused about uh, the exact classification of theology as over against doctrine. There must be a distinction in that the systematician, certainly relatively speaking, uses more, uh, more logical classification, a higher power of abstraction. But in my present state of mind, it seems to me this is a, a degree of specialization and, and uh, relative finesse rather than qualitative distinction. I cannot see that this is such a sharp qualitative attitude as, as logic antiquely set over against all logical uh, from the believer. Certainly Jesus Christ is Lord lacks a certain precision from, let us say, the same uh, concept developed in uh, Burkhauer's uh, two volumes on, two volumes he wrote, on Christ, on the, or, or Warfield's big work on the person of Christ. But there, there is, it seems to me, a, a continuity of greater precision in uh, formulation between uh, the simpler statement and the more precise statement. So I would say, at my present state of mind, the difference is the theologian merely 
faces more problems with the data of Scripture and tries to be more precise in his articulation of its meaning and its application. Thank you, Dr. Spires. Uh, what I have now is a question that is directed to, to the entire group. And since the, the two of our panel members have not yet responded because they haven't been asked, <laughs> I would like to direct this word and ask either one of them or both and whoever then would like to respond to, to say what he would like to say the question is this does the word of God and that's in quotation marks include in addition to the scriptures and Jesus Christ the word incarnate all underlined truth whether it be discovered in physics mathematics human relations, what have you, that's it. Does the Word of God include all truth wherever it's discovered? My <laughs> 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 <I> way <wait> first. <laughs> all right, all right uh, Dr. Newton, I <laughs> I think that particular question uh, has to be answered in a two-pronged fashion and I think it uh, involves a whole method of approach in apologetics uh, Christ of course is the word he is the creator of all things he's the logos who has created all things uh, everything then uh, which has been created reflects uh, Christ's creative activity and uh, really then uh, speaks of God speaks of uh, the creative origin of all things on the other hand of course we believe that in our particular world view Christ stands as the center as the incarnate word uh, the one then in, in all of our thinking we must reflect on Jesus Christ, as Dr. Ventil would put it, the self-attesting Christ, the one then who uh, testifies concerning himself and to which ultimately all our thinking must turn. And so if one then wants to ask this question whether all truth is the word of God, I think in the general sense that all truth then reflects God as its origin, one can say in that sense, yes. On the other hand, of course, if one uh, speaks more narrowly of redemptive words or of the concentration of all of truth in its very central meaning, then one, of course, uh, uses, in a sense, a narrower definition, but not really narrower, but in the sense of the concentration of meaning of all truth in Jesus Christ. So I think that this uh, must be answered in a two-pronged two fashion, and uh, in a way the answer is yes or no, but I think it's a matter of the more general, as it concentrates in Jesus Christ, of course, who is uh, then the truth. Dr. Ventil, would you at this point like to add to this? We'll hear from you more in a short while, as uh, you know. Anyone else? This is to the... I would say at this point, is there someone who would like to direct attention, a, a question to anyone here on the panel 
regarding this question brought up here, does the Word of God include more than Christ and Scripture? Does it include all truth, as discovered in physics, math, what have you? Anyone? Yes. Oh, I'm coming in, yes. I would like to ask, perhaps Dr. Van Phil, if you were, or maybe Dr. Lucy, to reflect on the distinction that Dr. DeGraff made today about uh, the inscripturated word as against the creational providential word, and uh, the relationship of the distinction that you made it to uh, what you think in your own mind is the relationship between natural and special revelation. I think Dr. Pantel is rather... All right, do finish it up. I thought that was a different question I was answering. But nevertheless, um, it seems to me that it is not a strange notion at all to us that the inscripturated word does not contain all of the word of God in special revelation. It is the inscripturated word that the Bible itself says that Christ said many, many things that if, if all of them should be put down, then the whole world would not be able to contain them. Uh, it's uh, a uh, obvious, uh, uh, he didn't say that much probably, but nevertheless there, there is the expression in the scripture. Uh, that is not certainly a, a strange idea at all. Uh, I think certainly Dr. Duhoff did not say at all that the scriptures were not the word of God. Uh, certainly we have to have God's revelation uh, his special revelation to understand uh, anything in this world Adam and Eve were walking in, uh, with God They were uh, God spoke to them of course not all of that conversation is in the scriptures but special revelation is necessary to understand God's general revelation so I don't see anything really uh, particularly strange in what Dr. DeHoff said at all provided of course one in terms of some notion of central, a central idea of revelation does not in some wise do despite to the infallibility and to the plenary inspiration of this inscripturated word. We have to avoid that quite definitely. But the, I think then, of course, the deeper question uh, in this whole notion is one that I, I have here that I'll perhaps address myself to later on. Uh, is whether or not, of course, how do we understand the scriptures themselves? Is there then a central addressing of God to us in a fashion uh, that cannot simply be a matter of simple exegesis of the scriptures? That question is somewhat, I think that's more central, but uh, I think I'll stop at this point and let Dr. Michelsky keep going. Yes, Dr. Michelsky. Yes, Dr. I have a question now that I would like to direct actually two of them to Dr. DeGraff. They fit in together quite nicely. Uh, the question is, if Professor Murray's ground motive is not creation, fall, redemption, communion, what is it? <laughs> How is it possible for simple believers to have radically different ground motives when they do exegesis. And then, which is, sounds like a continuation, but it's from a different person. Are the approaches to Scripture reflected in the interpretations of Romans 8, 29 following 
given by Professors Murray and Ritterboss, respectively, mutually exclusive, or does some other relationship obtain? Please expound the differences, sticking as close to the statements of Romans 8 as possible. <laughs> that, that reminds me that the professor of homiletics to whom I was exposed in my habit always warned against the danger of extra textual preaching. So this person says, stick to your text, Dr. DeGrav. Hand me the text. Mutually exclusive, you know, they're both within the reformed camp, they share that much. I think that first question I would decline to answer is Professor Murray's ground motive is not creation, fall, redemption, communion, what is it? Uh, I merely wanted to illustrate that from their understanding of scripture as propositional truth follows a certain type of exegesis. I did not want to and I did not in fact take it beyond that uh, just to alert you to the striking difference in approach. Um, <coughs> And I would leave it to, I did give some indication that I think that behind this view, as far as I understand it, and not having analyzed it in any detail, and I did not want to engage in that, that to it is like I feel that behind this is indeed a different view of man, or at least the place of the logical, and I would be willing to say that much. And leave it there how is it possible for simple believers to have radically different ground motives when they do exegesis uh, in the way I present things I would have to immediately reformulate that how is it possible for the theologians to have radically different ground motives when they do theological exegesis I've indicated that by referring to different religious starting point, a different understanding of the central meaning and structure of scripture. If you meant by this, how is it possible for simple believers to have radically different understanding of the scriptures when they and then by exegesis I would have to understand when they read or hear the word in faith then I think we would have to talk about ground motive, religious ground motive as uh, also already indicated a bit by Dr. Young as a communal idea that pervades can pervade a Christian community it is not something purely individual but is indeed a communal idea that comes to expression in many ways. Uh, background, 
this would be that religion is of that nature. So that in an article by a very simple person, plain person, in a certain church paper of a certain denomination, uh, you can find expressions that you wonder where did the man get these. He never studied theology, he's certainly not aware of these distinctions, and yet that's how he defines preaching and exegesis interpretation. To me, an indication of the force, the driving force of such a religious ground motive. <coughs> Within the Christian community, how it is possible that they differ? I think here, Zoewitz would very clearly refer to the synthesis idea that Christian faith is linked up, bound up with non-Christian idea and attempt to harmonize the two which would account for the different types of Christianity that do exist uh, you find the more popular treatment of this in the old book was by Runner, Dr. Runner the uh, uh, relation of Bible to learning and that would also be my explanation where the basic conviction of the believer is bound up with and influenced by them non-Christian religious motives that makes it always so difficult to judge the various types of Christianity that we do have because there's always genuine elements of the scriptures in there so that would prevent us from openly rejecting or totally rejecting such positions. Partly scriptural and partly some other things. This to me would indeed account for that. Um, <coughs> the other one where I had to be very precise. No, mutually exclusive. Perhaps you would repeat that whole question, William. Yes. Are the approaches to Scripture reflected in the interpretations of Romans 8, 29 and following, given by Professors Murray and Riddabos, respectively, mutually exclusive, or does some other relationship obtain? No, not in that sense, mutually exclusive. I do see some difference that what Professor Murray sees in the very words of Scripture jumping to the fore Ritterboss doesn't see at all or, or sees in the background and only as a part of its central message of that passage namely the assuring of the Christian and that's where this of God's acting in behalf of the believer and the certainty of that has its place so then not the logical progression stands in the fore but this other thing the defendability the graciousness of God's acting that he will surely accomplish and finish what he began long ago in Jesus Christ uh, in as much as 
Professor Riederbos does not hold to or in any way express a clear distinction between scientific exegesis and a more naive reading of scripture uh, I'm sure that he would not admit to any such exclusive difference I think he would want to argue for a difference in emphasis which to me reflects bit of this difference in understanding of the scriptures what are they all about are they primarily propositional or aren't they and I think Ritterboss would choose as far as I read them and understand them for this other emphasis yes uh, well, that's the question might I revert to something that Mr. Spires was speaking about can, a pardon me can you all hear thank you might I revert to something that Mr. Spires was speaking about and that bears on this entire subject. Now I bring out a couple of things that I think that are involved in the cosmonomic idea of theoretical thinking and the way it would bear on theology. And maybe someone would li on the panel would like to respond and set his position over against this or at least respond in some way. Um, Dr. de Graaf pointed out, I think correctly, that there is a distinction in this position between the idea that everything that we do involves an analytic aspect. That is, we discriminate. Whether it's coming in the door, we discriminate between the door jam and the door, otherwise we hit our head. And it's only if we're quite disturbed in one way or the other that we would mistake them. Uh, whether we discern between uh, uh, a belief in nonviolence of Mahatma Gandhi and a Christian approach, let us hope. Uh, we so on. But in the theoretical, the our act is as such qualified or led by the analytical in a way that it is not. But that is one thing that Dr. Zakhoff brought out very clearly in his talk, and I think that is very important to bring out. Now, there's something that I think has not been brought out very much this day, and that's this, that in the theoretical, according to the Doiverdian philosophy, the philosophy in general, Wallenhoven also, I think, we not only have an act in the theoretical which is qualified by or led by the analytical or the logical, but we have a deepened analytical act. That is, that we use concepts which have a history. We use a jargon, particular jargon that is developed in the course of the development of theoretical thinking. That then would be deepened in an historical sense. We have the rounding out to a system. And I don't think this is just a matter of more or less systematic. A person, I think, can be systematic or non-systematic in a pre-theoretical fashion. It's not just really a matter of system, but it's the nature of the concepts you're using. And the theoretical concept is used. It's a particular type of jargon 
And uh, there is then, however, a rounding out, uh, a leading of the aesthetic aspect, for one thing, rounding out to a system. Another thing is, there is the use of an economy of thought. There's the economic aspect, and the other aspects have something to do with it. I give the illustration in class of a woman on the telephone. Uh, there is anything but economy. And uh, another thing is, in a social relationship, on the naive level, a person dare not bring in the economic too much. She ought not to reduce his statements to a bare minimum. It's simply not polite. When you come into someone's house, you expect a person not to just give you the minimum of attention, but to make a little fuss over you, taking your coat and so forth, and vice versa. At least we do it in our house, and so forth. <laughs> well, at any rate, there's not the economy, but in, in your uh, theoretical, you will use the minimum number of concepts possible to develop a certain idea, and so on. Now, there's a deepened theoretical. Uh, the theoretical is a deep and analytical thing. Another thing is, Dr. Dukhoff did bring this out, and that is that this then, in theology, has to do with faith. has to do with the faith aspect. Now, that can be misunderstood, it seems to me, and it is misunderstood if the faith aspect is regarded to be some aspect in opposition to the other aspect, that it is completely separate from that is some noumenal sphere or uh, is some geschichte over against this or that or the other thing. I, I, I don't think, th I think that is a, really a misunderstanding uh, of what is intended here. At least I've never understood it that way and I must be taught if it must be understood in this fashion. What it seems to me is this. Now let's take an example. Uh, if we are going to speak of God's predestination, how are we going to understand that? Well, it certainly is not causality simply in a physical sense. When I first believed in predestination the first week or so, I had a tendency to think of it that way, but it took me about a week to work, or two weeks to work out of that idea. Uh, the thing is that I, w I had a long history here. <laughs> but the, the thing is, we know it's not this, we know it's not that, we know it's not the other. It is peculiarly qualified in a fashion, in other words, that can be understood only in faith as that faith is directed to God in his word. But we understand it in a peculiar fashion. That doesn't mean it doesn't have anything about causality about it at all. But it's a particular type of causality. Doyverk will use the word causality, the causality of God. He puts it sometimes in quotes. But he will not, as those who believe in the Geschichte history scheme, the phenomenal noumenal scheme, turn these around, but you get the idea, the noumenal phenomenal scheme, he will not say, for instance, that God's activity must be set over against all causality. That is what the uh, Bugerites, uh, the I-Thou people, as over against I it do. They set the idea. They say this cannot have anything to do with causality. And then what happens? Eventually, they have to bring in ideas of causality anyway. Uh, now there are three things I've brought up. For one thing, there is the analytical aspect of everything we do we discriminate even in the deepest things uh, concerning the word of God there is however that act which is qualified as analytic which is a theoretic act 
there then, uh, or any, of course, uh, but the theoretic act is perhaps different from maybe an, or, or another type of act that's qualified in that it is a deepened act and uh, the anticipations are opened up to the later aspects in the modal scheme. Another thing is, then, it would be uh, have to do with this faith aspect, not in opposition to the others, but qualifying particularly the way we understand uh, as we develop our concepts in theology. Now, if I'm simply talking about God having foreordained all things, if I say that simply as my confession, I'm not speaking in this theologically theoretical fashion because I don't do all this setting up over again type of thing. I don't say, well, now I don't mean this, that is the physical causality, I don't mean this, and so on. I simply confess in a free and open, without well, discriminating indeed, but not discriminating in this particular theolog uh, theoretical fashion. But if I discriminate theoretically, then I have to know what I'm about, I have to have a prolegomena, I have to know how I'm relating the concept that it's not physical, it's not this, it's not that, and the other. So uh, uh, I think that has to do somewhat with the Gegenstand or the antithetic relation, if I'm not mistaken. So I'd like to bring out these three factors as characteristic of theoretical theology and get the reaction of the gentleman here in the panel. Uh, all right, who would like to pick that one up? <laughs> uh, I have much to learn here, and I appreciate this uh, attempt. Now, you said this is a qualitative or distinct logical act from the believer's belief in predestination or coordination. When he confesses freely and openly, I believe God for all these sort of things. I think this. Uh, I, mean, I didn't say it's not this and it's not that, it's not the next thing. My point is, suppose you went to the simple believer and said, is it this? He says, no, I don't mean that. Is it that? No, I don't mean that. Is it that? No, I don't mean that. In other words, it's not physical causality. No, I don't mean that. Mm -hmm. Then he's become a theologian. Um, in so far as there's an element of discrimination, I think he can say, in a way, it's not this. But I don't think that he will be developing a uh, an idea of the relationship between what this is and the way that he would seek to define it as over against, let's say, a, a definition of logical causality. Yeah. I, I mean, of, of physical causality. I don't think he would be doing that. In, uh, that. in that particular sense, setting one aspect up over against the other, let's say. But he would still discriminate. You're right. Yes. I, my, my only point is I feel, I mean, you, you chose a good uh, case in which to make this, but I feel that to see that that is really so sharp a qualitatively different cognitive attitude. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm willing to believe it is and to be shown it is, but I, just, I didn't see, and I'm really eager to see that. No. I, I shall join you in your eagerness. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> in other words, I know, I know the claim, but I haven't seen it demonstrated. That's my point. I'm, I don't claim to have arrived in these no. things. I'm simply yes. trying to get your reaction. But right. I do think that this would be the type yes. of thing that's required by this position, and I have a, ten, a strong liking for it myself. Yes. Well, uh, with regards to that question, uh, would the naive Christian, the simple believer, even know what physical causality was? How well, do you, like, to ask my wife, for example, uh, if I said, what is physical causality? You made a confession now. Is that physical causality? I think she would have to say, I'm not sure what you mean by physical causality. I have no idea what you really mean 
theoretically by physical causality. I think we all believe here that a naive believer is not so naive as he once was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in other words, suppose your wife were a, a theoretical physicist. You know, her naive religious experience, well, certainly as a physicist, she has all kinds of problems about causality, you know, the theoretical physicist. So you say, is that physical causality? You say, well, <laughs> I'm not naive in physics, but uh, uh, you, uh, you ask a question I have some knowledge of and some experience with. My point being, uh, a simple believer, you, if, you, if you picture somebody in a primitive state, obviously he wouldn't know physical causality as a, as a concept. That is a, that's a theoretical term that's fed back into our naive experience, you see, as, we, as civilization develops. So my point is, uh, yes, I think a, a naive believer could understand such questions as you raise. He's naive in the sense that he's not a theologian. Whatever, I mean, I don't know the distinction fully, you see. I, I'm inclined to believe, although I'm not ready to stake my life upon it. It's, I'm inclined to believe. I, I haven't seen it demonstrated as qualitatively sharp yet. as an entirely different cognitive attitude. May I say that no one ought to be willing to stake his life. <laughs> <laughs> That's well taken, I think. Uh, all right, we have many that we're going to proceed to yet. We are just begun. Here's one that's directed to most, both Dr. DeGraff and Dr. Young. A statement from each one of you, please, it says here. Nothing has been more characteristic of reformed soteriology than the logical causal priority of regeneration to faith. How do you assess this distinction and so the underlying conceptual conception of the Ordo Salutis? Did I repeat that or you got it? Uh, Dr. Young, would you like to uh, try it first? I'm delighted to speak to that excellent question. <laughs> <laughs> it's an excellent question because it gives me an opportunity to remark on at least two things which are dear to my heart. First of all, to give a little homily against Arminianism. <laughs> And secondly, to theorize a little bit of the order solution. <laughs> yes, I should say the logical, if you will, causal priority of regeneration to faith is an absolutely cardinal point of Reformed theology. The whole question of free and sovereign grace can be understood to hint on this point. When the Arminian or the Arminianizing preacher makes his appeal for decision and says, believe on Jesus and then you'll be born again or you'll be born again by believing in Christ. The whole question as to who decides who it is to be saved is answered in terms of the free will of man. Now our Reformed theology has used logic 
but it has used logic to make a point which is of fundamental religious significance. The question as to whether man is on the throne and decides by the decision of his will what his eternal destiny will be, whereas God just sits back and foresees it and puts a rubber stamp on what the creature of his own determines, or whether or not God is really on the throne and has made the decision in his eternal counsel. The issue is as clear-cut as that, and our Reformed theologians have been similarly clear, and I see nothing objectionable in talking of a logical, which is not necessarily a temporal a priority, of faith to regeneration. It doesn't mean that somebody is born again at one time or other and then uh, remains unconverted, as Dr. Abraham Kuyper's son was said uh, to have said about the Apostle Paul, that Paul was a regenerate blasphemer. He had been born again as a covenant child, and uh, this born-again man was blaspheming and causing Christians to blaspheme, and uh, then he got converted at a certain point. Well, I'm not talking about any such temporal priority of regeneration to conversion or faith. Uh, I'm not saying that there may not be a temporal priority in the experience of some of God's children. That's another question. But the question, the point is that even when it's at exactly the same moment as normally it may be that a person is born again, the person believes in Jesus Christ, the person believes because he's been born again and that's an effect of God's work. It's not that God makes a change in the person as a consequence of the person on his own belief. Now that's extremely important. And John Murray and I used to argue on a different point of the Ordo Salutis as to the uh, relative priority uh, of the logical priority of regeneration and justification and John Murray used to remark that uh, this was kind of a theoretical point in which uh, reformed theologians could have different opinions but on this question of the relation between faith and regeneration this was no mere theoretical point this is the point where you have two different religions <laughs> When Dr. Young says that uh, the Reformed theologians have used logic to make a point and to safeguard the sovereignty of God's grace, then I would greatly sympathize with that both with the statement and the theologians that did that. Uh, however, when you ask about is that a logical causal priority? I think we were just talking about this. Uh, that makes indeed no sense to me. Then I would have to ask in the manner that Dr. Knudsen just indicated, what do you mean by priority, a causal priority, what kind? And then I would immediately have to translate and say, this is the kind of priority that is qualified entirely by the faith. And in that context, it is meaningless to talk about logical causal priority. Uh, and I see that reflected in the history as much as I, or as little as I know about that, 
uh, of Reformed theology, that there is this constant struggle what to do with the responsibility that is pointed out in Scripture to man. Uh, many Reformed theologians would wholeheartedly endorse the sovereignty of God's grace, but as we've been remarked often in their preaching, they're pretty Arminian at times. <coughs> and I see that because we have not reflected or not thought too clearly here what we mean by priority. And this is a case in point where further reflection, I think, could bring us to, in my estimation, a more clearer and better theological formulation here. That would be my answer to that. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, thanks both of you men for your lucid answers. Fourth right. Could we hear Dr. Young's response to Dr. Graff? Would you like to respond to him on that point? <laughs> I'll make just just one uh, comment. In part, we could get into a uh, debate about cosmic time and so on. It has never struck me that Joy uh, uh, speaking of a time order in logic itself uh, is very uh, is very illuminating. But I don't know that it need make all that much material difference. One could translate into Joy uh, 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 talk about. Uh, uh, time order in logic, uh, the same point uh, that I've been making in a quite traditional way, namely that there certainly is uh, a difference between uh, a person's being regenerated at uh, six o'clock in uh, the afternoon, let's say, and not believing until seven o'clock. Uh, there's a difference between that, uh, uh, that kind of a uh, priority of regeneration uh, to faith, and the kind of priority which it is essential to maintain, namely that even though it may be at exactly the same moment of time that uh, regeneration occurs, that the person first believes, nonetheless, there is an order and uh, I don't know what language we have that's uh, better than uh, the language of because, the language of at least of a cause or a because in this matter. Predestination, the old scholastic theologians used to say, doesn't put anything in uh, anybody. Uh, but as distinguished from predestination, there is the execution of God's eternal decree. And the, and the execution of God's decree, and in this case, the working of efficacious grace, is uh, something which we can hardly talk about except in pretty strong causal terms. And Calvinists have been known uh, 
uh, not to uh, be squeamish even about talking of the irresistible grace. I mean, this is uh, you know, this is the language of causality that we use at uh, this uh, at, at this particular point, and it's uh, just in this it, it's just in this connection. Uh, that the priority of regeneration to uh, saving faith and repentance is insisted on. All right. I would like to go on to another matter. And I have grouped together here three questions, <coughs> which will all be directed to Dr. Ventil. And uh, he knows about this. And uh, I'll read them through and the time it is. These are, these are serious questions, and I think all of us, including the members on the panel, would like to hear Dr. Ventil out on, on these matters. Dear Dr. Ventil. <laughs> how would you distinguish between Dr. DeGrasse's understanding of the inscripturated word as distinct from God's word in creation and providence, in which distinction he seemed to deny any primacy of the inscripturated word with your understanding of the relationship between general and special revelation. And then the one that next one is, can the traditional reform doctrine of scripture, particularly as developed by Warfield, be reconciled with the philosophy of the cosmonomic idea. And then finally, the third, how would you, con what would you consider to be the significance of the presentations today of Dr. Young and Dr. DeGrasse for apologetics? Now, now. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to hold him to that quarter to nine coffee hour. We're going to wait until he has ended with his finish. May I stand here? Oh, yes. May I begin with the last question, Mr. Chairman? Maybe I won't get to the others. <laughs> uh, well, I want to say, first of all, that I have greatly enjoyed this day, and both speeches were, I think, excellent addresses, and I have learned a great deal from both of them. Now, I am existentially involved in I, because I have been attacked by both sides, <laughs> not by these gentlemen today, but by their predecessors, uh, in a sense. I don't want to identify Dr. Young's position with that of Dr. Gordon H. Clark, but there is a very striking similarity. And Dr. Clark has in the past said that my position in apologetics means I don't have knowledge, I only have an analogy of knowledge, but no knowledge. In other words, my view in apologetics cannot account for the fact of knowledge. Now, I was brought up on the traditional Amsterdam position in apologetics. I read Kuiper and Bavink long before I read Warfield. And when I came to Princeton Seminary, then I had to listen to the Warfield point of view, and I got a bath in the probability argument of Bishop Butler. 
So the contrast between two points, this will come out in a minute, the germ, I hope it'll be germane to what you're asking. The contrast at that time was Amsterdam-Princeton apologetics. Now it's no longer that. We are now told this morning or this afternoon that Dr. Young represents a classical semi-scholastic tradition, and now we have Doyawerd representing something new beyond Kuiper. Now, I've learned a great deal from both of them, and I've learned particularly from Doyawerd, whom I have read for many, many years when he started first to put out his big work, I read it over a number of times, and I learned a great deal from it. What I've learned from it in particular is the, from the history of philosophy, I think Dr. Young referred to it, his magnificent analyses of the history of philosophy, and that particularly that book, which unfortunately hasn't been translated, um, the history of Greek philosophy, his analyses of Plato and of Aristotle, and in general of Greek philosophy. Now, he calls those immanentistic schemes of philosophy, and his point is that they all, whatever their differences between them, what he calls the Greek form matter scheme, because they are based on the notion that man is autonomous. Now, he uses the term autonomy of theoretical thought. It seems to me to be better to speak of the autonomous man, the man who did what Adam did in paradise, namely say, God, you're not to tell me what to do. I'll stand on my own hind legs and I'll be somebody who determines for myself what the laws of experience will be. Now that, to me, at that occasion, rationalism and irrationalism were both introduced simultaneously because what was involved was this, was it not, namely that God didn't know what he was talking about when he predicted that if a man ate of that forbidden tree, he would surely die. Who was God to tell that? There were no experiments, no records at Harvard or Yale or Chicago or anywhere else to tell a person what would happen if you ate of that forbidden tree. So it was pure arbitrary authoritarianism. And who wants to stand for that if he has any self-respect, if he's an autonomous, self-law-giving personality? That's what Satan said to Eve and to Adam. At the same time, so he said, take at, look at it this way, God's way of saying things, and what he, it's a good hypothesis, and you should give God a chance, his hypothesis, on the par with my hypothesis. But if you want to be somebody, you ought to stand on your own feet and determine which hypothesis is better than the other hypothesis as an interpretation of reality. Unfortunately, there wasn't any reality. There was nothing but prediction to be made, and God, who had made the facts, predicted what would come out of them, and so he alone was in a position to do it. But Satan tried to get man to say, well, that's one way of looking at it. That's an hypothesis. Well, then, of course, that meant that God is surrounded by abstract possibility. God himself is floating around in the realm of an ocean, that is bottomless and shoreless, pure chance, bottomless chance, and God isn't any bigger than the devil or man. At the same time, since man chose for the devil, 
He took it upon himself to say, I'll bet my life that the devil is right. Now, that's rationalism, poor son. Isn't that prior to experience, he's predicting what will happen, betting his life on it. Now, that, I take it, is the history of all apostate thinking, and that's why I don't have such great difficulty as Dr. Young seems to think he has about generalizing. I don't generalize otherwise than on the basis of what I now believe that is God has spoken to me just as truly as he spoke to Adam directly through Christ who identified himself as the Son of God and who gave his apostles instruction to put this down in words, in propositions, and not to be sure a string of unrelated propositions, but an organic whole, a system of truth, if you will, not a system in which you deduce logically one doctrine from another so that you start with the doctrine of God and then come down to every fact. No, but there is symmetry and concordance, coherence in the various teachings of Scripture. Now that, to me, is the presupposition which is underneath, like the beams are underneath its floor. Unless there were these beams, you couldn't sit here so quietly. Well, now, therefore, I would say I start with that now because God, in his condescending grace, sent his Son into the world, and he has given me, together with his people, whom he has redeemed and has chosen out of the nations, of the world for no good that was in us, but has set our feet upon solid ground. We now no longer believe in the autonomy of man. We've got a new view of God, a new view of man, and I think Calvin had a pretty decent view of man, and I think Abraham Kuyper did, and I don't think Doyle's view is so much different from that of Abraham Kuyper, for instance. In other words, the heart is the center of man. Everybody knows that. And uh, Dr. Clark says that also in his writings. So then we who have learned to have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light have now come to regard our relationship to God as a person-to-person covenantal relation in which everything that we do, eat or drink or do anything else is covenantally conceived and we're involved in it all. And that's why I don't particularly like this distinction between naive and theoretical, at least if it's made sharp. I think I can go along with Dr. Knudsen when he says that the theoretical is a deepened, more sophisticated expression, but I cannot go along with the sharp separation. Now, I was brought up in naive experience. I was a teenager, and I hadn't gone to high school and there was a cow, if I might have room on the platform to bring that cow that was here this afternoon. My father was a dairy farmer, and he knew cows. And one time a neighbor's cow got sick, and the veterinarian was called. Now, he was the man of Gegenstandsrelation. <laughs> that is to say, he was the one that set this idea uh, over against that. Now, he didn't take the cow to pieces, and he didn't do anything other than my father did, except that he had more information 
of a biological nature and what nature and what have you. Just the same, my father predicted and said, the cow has tuberculosis. And the veterinarian said no. And the next morning the cow died and my father proved to be right. <laughs> now the point is that when I have naive experience, I'm like my good old father was. And I, he argued about the contents of the Reformed faith. And as long as I can remember, they were arguing, my uncle and he, A and B, I and B. Was Kuiper right or were the, lib, were the old Askeskaiden churches right? Now that were simple, ordinary people that had never been even beyond the ordinary grade school. Now they had to deal with concepts. They had to think concepts over against one another, they use the Gegenstand's relation just as much as Doyerware does, not as in sophisticated a fashion. So in the nature of the case, I don't think it's possible, and I do think it's bad for this reason. We are all of us called to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. So farmers are. And they wouldn't be able to if you set of them that they only have naive experience, then they couldn't talk intelligently to somebody else. They wouldn't have any conceptually constructed system of truth. Now, they were committed to the Heidelberg Catechism. And you can't make me believe that they were not existentially involved. What is your only comfort in life and in death that I belong not to myself, but to my Savior Jesus Christ, and that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair shall fall from my head. That was existential involvement. Now, when I am called upon to be a philosopher, I must be as existentially involved when I make the most sophisticated distinction as I am when I'm a naive, man of naive experience. So, you're taking away, you tend to take away, the opportunity of witnessing on the part of the simple believer. And you're asking virtually that you don't require a man, whether he eats or drinks, or has a Gegenstand's Relations philosophy, also to witness for Christ. Abram Kuyper said, not a square inch, Cain Durnbreit, except the ground, but we must claim it for Christ. Now, if you're going in as a philosopher, that's what you ought to do, should you not? You should do this self-consciously just as much as you do when you're naive, and that's religious. Now, I'm worried about certain developments. You see, wonderful things have happened, and I have greatly rejoiced in this development of the philosophy of Dewey and Vollenhoven. They were working, as they said, in Kuiper's line. So far, so good. When Kuiper was giving the Princeton lectures, the Stone lectures, he said in his first lecture, My friends, he says, I've come to America to tell you that you must set principle over against principle. And then he lectured on art and on science and on, and on religion. He, he covered the whole gamut of human experience. He did use philosophical terminology. Now, therefore, that it is which I was hoping and am hoping, and I've, I think we have learned much from Doiwerth, 
that we may go beyond Kuiper in that direction. But now with this distinction, I do not think we're going beyond Kuiper. I do not think we're improving. What has happened in recent times is this. Dr. Uh, Berkhauer used to write very strong books in his earlier days. He wrote one on Scripture in which he took a very strong conservative position on Scripture. He wrote one book on Karl Barth in which he said Karl Barth was more nominalistic than Occam. He wrote uh, two or three books, two at least big books, Conflict with Rome. Now later he's written on all three subjects and he has lowered his position on all three of them. He wrote one article in the Kerepomet Theologisch Zeitschrift in which he took a radically different position on the, on, the, on the theory of what the Synod of Dort had done. He said, oh, they meant so well, those good people, those forefathers. He used to defend them through thick and thin. But now he apologizes for them, and he says, well, they used causal concepts. They didn't see that this was a religious question. Now, my point is, friends, that it is a sad thing that Berkhauer does not distinguish his use from of a religious notion and a causal notion from the concept of the I-thou in the I-it dimension that is all around us and that is swallowing us up. In other words, that is what he has done in this respect. Now, therefore, he does not now distinguish clearly between neo-orthodoxy and Calvinism as he formerly did. He now, second Vatican, now everything is very much, very encouraging. They're looking at the Bible, he says, and when you look at the Bible and people look at the Bible, maybe they'll improve. Surely enough, that's true. But no one of these recent Roman Catholic theologians has shown the iota or tittle of intention or inclination to think of the Bible as the written once for all finished word of God. They've only mixed in the form matter scheme of ancient thinking, the essentialist scheme of Aquinas with the existentialist scheme that has followed upon, upon Kant's philosophy. And they're awfully happy about it because now they can explain their problems better, better than Newman was able to say how can you hold to the irreformability, the everlasting just soundness and solidity of doctrine with newness. Well, now they can do both because they've got now utter openness as well as utter closeness as correlative one to another. In other words, they've loosened up the machinery. And, now, and that means that now we have Romanism and neo-orthodoxy joining hands, and that's why these Roman Catholic theologians, Hans Urs von Balthasar, Hans King, and many more, are so happy about Karl Barth, who militates against our lying Wirksamkeit Gottes, against the reformers who were determinists. Now, my friends, I wish now that my friend Dr. Berkhauer, who certainly is a close friend of Doyaware's, and who defends Doyaware's philosophy would tell us why he has thus changed his attitude in this threefold aspect. Now, 
Years and years ago, I wrote a little book on common grace, and I signalized some scholastic elements in Abram Kuyper and in Herman Boving, and I was uh, soundly trounced for that by some of my Christian Reformed friends. Did I dare to go beyond Kuyper and Boving? Holy horror. Now, <laughs> today, everybody finds that Boving is scholastic, scholastic, and scholastic. A thousand times more so than I ever said he was. And now my good friends don't say anything about Beckhauer, that he goes way beyond. Now, it's one thing, and dissertation upon dissertation appears in Amsterdam to point out how full of scholasticism we've all been. And now then, what happens apparently is this. Scholasticism is a synthesis between Christianity and the form matter scheme of the Aristotelian thought. Is it better to put in a new synthesis between modern dialecticism and Christianity? Is it better to be ground to powder or to drown? In other words, in both cases, it's a synthesis and a murdering of historic Christianity. Now that is, therefore I haven't gotten much help on apologetics recently because it is that tendency which means concessiveness and more concessiveness. And on this point, my friend Dr. Gordon H. Clark stands much better than these people on that side of the fence do. Now, I can't get along with Dr. Clark either. Or, <laughs> or I'm a crab, it seems. You see, I didn't eat dinner with these people, and that's why I have a right to be crabby. Or Dr. Clark can't get along with me. But you see, what I find the great difficulty in Dr. Clark is this. He says what the Bible believes. That's the Word of God. And then he's... A, he's wonderfully right, and I agree with him. And he says what the Presbyterians believe is right, not the new Presbyterians, not Henry and company. Unfortunately, Berkauer pats Henry and company on the back on their new confession. And therefore, Dr. Clark is certainly more right than they are in the Netherlands on this score. But the point is this, that then apologetically, Dr. Clark turns right around and now he says Christianity is at least as good as the other or better than the other. It's a hypothesis. Well, that presupposes that possibility is above God. In his theology, God is the source of possibility. In his apologetics, possibility is above God. And you're not helping the fundamentalists. Isn't it our business as Reformed Christians to help other Christians to lead the fight, the fight against unbelief and to help them see how the Christian faith can be stated and defended? Well, if that is our task, and that seems to me to be the apologetic task, then, Mr. Chairman, I'll stop. Then I think we ought to simply say we believe on authority, absolutely on authority, what the Bible says. And what the Bible says is God's word through Christ has been written, and that's the final norm of truth and of error. 
and then we can see if we, for argument's sake, place ourselves upon the opponent's position, if he starts as he does start, and as they all do, with man as autonomous, with the facts as not created, and therefore as here by chance, and as having to string all those facts by a universal law, it's as hopeless as stringing an infinite number of beads, no two of which have holes in them. <laughs> now, I think we ought to say that to the unbelievers. Now, my friends are not willing to go along with this, and I'm very sorry about this. This is very cocky, I know. But I do believe it's simple, historic, biblical Christianity, and it's what our fathers, I think, have taught us. And I thank you for your patience.